0: Welcome to the cross cultural Psych podcast with Professor Paul Youngbin Kim. This podcast features conversations on the intersection of psychology, culture and faith with renowned scholars in psychology and related fields.
1: And now here's Dr. Paul Youngbin Kim.
0: Today I'm pleased to have Becky White and Cedric Stout with us. Becky White has been a radio DJ, EDM singer, translator, magazine editor and fashion model all experiences that she draws upon in the many facets of her work. A biracial Korean American, she grew up as a military kid and has split her life between the United States and South Korea. Her experiences as a mixed Korean in Korea led her to create the Hafi Project, or Honyar Yagi, through which she explores mixed Korean identity both culturally and ethnically around the world and through multiple mediums including photography, writing, film, and interviews. After meeting her partner Cedric in Seoul, they decided to relocate to New York City, where currently Becky works as an actress and voice talent, while continuing the Happy project. Cedric Stout is a filmmaker, video producer and editor, born in North Carolina, moved to Seoul, South Korea, and now in New York area. The son of a Korean mother and an African-American father, Cedric grew up in an interracial, intercultural home, which has influenced much of his life. His passion for sharing stories through film grew his first YouTube channel in Korea to over 6 million views. Super impressive. In a short time. And now he's the co-director and lead cameraman for the Hafi Project, Honyeol Yagi with his partner, Becky. Becky and Cedric, welcome.
2: Thank you for having us.
0: It's such a pleasure to have you. And I'm really looking forward to our conversation today. So in your bios, the Haffey Project came up. If you could, for our listeners, describe the Hafi project and any related work that you're doing currently.
2: Okay, well, I think just uh, an overreaching description of it. It is a digital media project that explores the mixed Korean experience, both culturally and ethnically. And we do think that it combines, like it can cover both of those areas, right? Because uh, there's many mixed Korean cultures, especially as we do this work that we've discovered in different pockets around the world. And we explore that through either interviews, video format, sometimes written. There's lots of writings that I do. We have a podcast. We also include a visual format with photography. And sometimes I even just include, you know, these talks one-on-one with people or people who have questions they write in. All of that encompasses the Happy project. And it started in South Korea when I was there. And I can get into all that later. But that's where it started and it has expanded even farther beyond than what we expected so it kind of has more of a global reach now and i i kind of view it as a a community spot and also an archive and almost like a research data pool because we get so many people Mm -hmm. who write in and communicate with us so we keep all of that in mind whenever we do our work but ultimately yes it's a project that explores the mixed screen experience ethnically and culturally around the world
0: thank you for that summary and let's go a little bit deeper into the HAPI project and related work that you're doing and Becky and and Cedric you've both talked about how you have shared experience as biracial and multiracial individuals on the other hand there are also diverse experiences within the multiracial or biracial community how does the HAPI project speak into the both the shared experience but also the diversity experiences as well that ultimately you want to capture that this is a community that can validate each other's experiences, but also not homogenize the experience in a way that simplifies the complexity of what people are experiencing. So can you speak a little bit to that?
2: Yeah, that's a great question. Do you do you have anything on
1: mine? Sure, I'll, I guess I'll kick it off. I think, Paul, oh, you hit it right on the head there. I think the Happy project is great in that there's, there's a, a great pool of people that have similar experiences, or at least there is a common thread within all of us. And that is whether we're ethnically Korean or culturally Korean in some aspect. And I think it's great in that for a lot of people, for the longest time, they felt like they were the only ones like themselves. They felt like there's no one else like me. I'm so unique and I don't have anyone else to relate to. Now, personalizing that a little bit with myself, you know, I grew up in a Korean household as well as a, an American household, with both of my parents being just active participants in raising me, mm-hmm. and I've had the the luxury and the privilege of growing up around a lot of half Koreans because we lived in a military town that had a lot of Koreans actually within military families, and so I had the luxury of of growing up around many different half Koreans, whereas someone like Becky mm-hmm. actually did not, even though she also has a military background. I'm sure she could speak to that, but the Happy project was something that brought us together because even though I was familiar with, you know, the presence of half Koreans in my life, Becky was not. And I think that is one of the, the catapults of starting the project for her. And for us to meet through that was, was a great start to be able to connect, to share our experiences, the good and the bad. And I think that is one of the key highlights of the Happy project, and, and at least from what I've seen. And it's not only us that that shares that sentiment it's it's you know just thousands of people at this point yeah. sharing that sentiment of oh we're able to connect with other people that are like me now we can get into the conversation of well we're both half Korean but as you can tell I'm actually I'm half black and half Korean Vicky is half white and Korean we're both from America so for that even though we have the common thread of Korean there's the other side mm-hmm. and 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 that is where it gets interesting in the conversation of how people treat us or how they perceive us. Yeah. And I'm more than happy to get into that, but I don't know. If
2: well, know yeah, that. I do want to hop in really quickly for that question. Something that's been so curious, because we start out with, these are things that I've also discovered as we're doing the project, right? Because I come in, even with my own limited perception of what it means to be mixed Korean, because I only had myself to go off of that. I really didn't have a community of mixed Koreans growing up. And so the... The thing I've realized as well while doing this project, though to some people says it's so niche, it's so narrow, why don't you expand it to all kinds of biracial people? Why don't you expand it to all kinds of multiracial people? On one hand, yes, it might feel very niche, but the thing I've realized is it's also extraordinarily broad that there are so many people who are mixed Korean all over the world who have lived very different experiences. But what I think is so key about conversations is our ability to connect on at least that one level mm-hmm. we have this korean roots somewhere we have this desire and interest to be part of that that uri, whatever that is what that looks like to you we're trying to understand it and that's why we all found the happy project so this is why like yeah it's just it's just been very interesting doing this project because i myself have also expanded my idea of, of what it means to be mixed korean yeah, so while we're also very narrow, we're also pretty broad. It's exactly like you said, it's really a very diverse group of people. And I don't think people first think that at, when they first hear half Korean, but it's very broad.
0: Yeah, I really appreciate your honesty and transparency and in, in also mentioning about how you have had conversations about differences in your experiences, right, as mm a couple how you have navigated those stories as well. So to the degree that you feel comfortable, I know Cedric, you mentioned you're happy to get into some of these stories. What would be an example of something that illustrates the different experiences that even between you and Becky that you have talked about?
1: Sure. We've, you know, we've talked about a lot of the differences, but we've also experienced in real time with each other some of the differences. Mm-hmm. And if I can just maybe start off with an example, and I'm sure it might open up other doors, but something very small is while living in Korea, now, again, this is a different context versus America, but while living in Korea, we the first layer of our half Koreanness, if I could say it that way, is our image and our appearance. Yeah. And what we've noticed is to the everyday Korean there, how they perceive me as a half-Korean is way different than they perceive Becky. And... That leads into how we're treated as different. And an example of that, very small, minor as it might sound, is, for example, we went to a restaurant one day and they had a host there or hostess who, you know, was seating the guests and we come up and she greets us in Korean, of course. And then, you know, I I greet her in Korean, so does Becky. And then she proceeds to speak to both of us but she speaks to Becky in Korean. Mm-hmm. And then she she kind of gets confused because she doesn't know what to do with me. Mm-hmm. Probably in her eyes, I'm just just a wiggle or foreigner. Mm-hmm. Right. And so, but I've given her no indication that I can't communicate with you, right. you know, in mm-hmm. native language. And you know, she she like would not talk to me. She would actually talk to Becky
3: mm-hmm.
1: in an effort to sort of translate what she wanted to say to me. Yeah. And Becky is, you know, and she's so good at this. She usually, in a very polite way, redirects the person's focus to to talk to me. And usually she'll say, oh, he understands Korean mm-hmm. or he is Korean as well.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: And that happens, that happened quite frequently. Very yeah, very consistently versus, whereas Becky, who can, depending on how she styles herself or depending on the day, she can pass for Korean in Korea, you know, without people really, you know, batting an eye, And she doesn't really experience that. Whereas if I'm experiencing that every day and, you know, what I found with myself is it sort of weighed on me as I lived there a little bit longer because I'm dealing with this almost on a daily basis and nobody means harm by it. So we have, we have developed empathy to be able to put ourselves in, you know, the native Korean shoes, but, but I, you know, I started getting a little stressed by that. And it's just, you know, after going through it day after day, because, for me i'm like why treat me differently i you know i understand the culture i am part of the culture i didn't grow up here of course in korea that is but you know i it just kind of makes me remind myself or it reminds me of my otherness you know and so it's like i'm i'm faced with this every day whereas i don't know if becky could necessarily say this i know she can but like in a different way extent. Right. Right. So she was a great sounding board during that time. Really. Yeah, <laughs> for sure. A very
2: frequent sounding board. yes. No, but it's it's like the thing it works too is we understood to some extent what that feels like mutually without mm-hmm. having to explain it out loud because it's very easy, you know to speak to somebody who doesn't know this experience or how it feels. It's very easy to write it off. So easy to say like, oh well, you know it's okay. Mm-hmm. Don't worry, you're 100 percent Korean. They just don't know, they're ignorant. And people like to use those things to make us feel better about these instances. When in reality, we are very empathetic and completely understanding why people treat this way to us, Mm -hmm. but it doesn't change the way you feel about it. It doesn't change your daily mundane experiences of going through that. It's such a curious thing, professor, because it's like, it really is dependent where you are and who's around you. It's very strongly dependent on the community and society, right? Because I realized this since moving to the US in Korea, it's probably like ninety percent of the time I can pass, I will slide through. Right. Then that ten percent of the time is a very strong well, you're just foreigner. Like you're not even Korean. I have no idea, right? But when I'm here in the States, I would say it's probably a hundred percent of the time people's first thought is just mm-hmm. like, Well she's just Korean. People don't expect me to say like, oh, actually, I was born here. I speak English fluently. So mm-hmm. it's a very funny experience and can be a little disorienting, to be honest. Right. Yeah.
1: Whereas I don't share in that because here I'm just viewed as most people don't know what I am, to be yeah, honest, yeah. here in America, in Korea, no one ever thinks I'm Korean
2: or guesses. Right. It's curious. It's very curious. And it's, it's like what you said. We do wear it on our skin, right? It is that first it's like the multiple layers that people use to immediately check off the box of, are you one of us or are you not? And the problem with that is the skin, how you look, Mm -hmm. your physical features, that's the first biggest box that people check off. And they might behave accordingly to that assumption about you. When, if you consider something else I noticed here in the States, we've lived in Korea, we speak the language, we've experienced working and living in Korea in that culture yet we'll encounter Korean-Americans who write us off as not Korean, you don't know anything because of how we look, even though they've never been to Korea, even though they don't speak Mm
0: -hmm.
3: any
2: of it. So it's a really interesting dichotomy we experience.
0: I'm just processing everything that you just said, including the fact that this is really good, (laughs) but like, I'm making connections to my research as well and what we talk about in psychological science. I mean, you didn't use the word, but you're describing microaggressions directed toward biracial and multiracial individuals, right? Where there's other rising, Cedric, you used the word feeling like other, right? Or being otherized, the, regardless of the context that you might be in, right? That in the US in Korea, among Korean Americans, you might feel a sense of invalidation of experiences. and And also, Cedric, you mentioned something about how in Korea you couldn't pass for a Korean, whereas Becky could. right? And in multicultural sciences in the States, we sometimes use the term white passing, white passing to refer to individuals who can pass as if they're white or come across as if they're white. And I wonder if in Korea, too, there is a sort of a parallel idea where some people can pass as Koreans, whereas others because of their visibility, like Becky like said, might not be able to, right? And how that leads to then different kinds of microaggressions. And we didn't even get into gender. And so I think all of these things can be so layered and so nuanced. Yeah,
2: yeah absolutely. No, we completely
0: agree. Yeah. I know that across various platforms, you've talked about your experiences in the Christian church and growing up in the Christian church. And because this podcast has a theme that relates to Christianity. I was wondering if you would be comfortable in speaking about that experience, growing up in a Christian context and how your biracial identity was received or not received, how it was supported or not supported.
2: Mm -hmm. you want to go first?
1: Sure. Yeah, so I think uh, for me, all the way up until the age of 18, most of my, well, let let me give a little context to my background. My worldview is Christianity and grew up in the church. Also, you know, I'm a Bible believer. I believe in the faith. And I grew up really with my mom taking us to church, which meant Korean church. Mm-hmm. And so all the way up until the age of 18, I just went to Korean church. And then I had a period of almost 10 years of going to a non-denominational multicultural church. So the experience of growing up in the Korean church is very, very pivotal for Pivotal for me because one, it's a Korean church, and this is where I had most of my exposure to Korean culture as as it is, you know, in the States, I guess, with my mother's generation primarily, because the churches we would go to, I would say majority of the members, the Korean members, would be, you know, maybe the the generation of immigrants from the 80s and 90s, and some from the 70s. And so it's really that korean culture that they brought with them was sort of infused in the churches that i've attended as far as friendships and relationships a lot of my churches that i've attended many other half koreans there as well so so for me it was never anything that was unique necessarily or or different that's that's what i was exposed to that's what i knew as far as the church I don't know. I guess because I did grow up in Korean churches around military towns, I mean, I think a a lot of the Koreans were either married to Americans and had the mixed kids or they were just used to being in the context of a lot of half Koreans. And so growing up, I didn't feel any different, I don't think. I mean, there was a part of me that knew I didn't look like a lot of my Korean friends or the Korean members of the church, like physically, but... I didn't really feel very different, but that's because I also didn't have the, I I didn't really think about culture in that way growing Mm -hmm. up. So now looking back, I can start to see how, oh, maybe you know, I wasn't treated exactly like, or viewed exactly like I was just a a full Korean or full Korean American. But for the most part, I think my church experience has been one where I've connected with not only my Korean culture, Mm and was able to reinforce the the little bit of Korean I did know because every Sunday or every Bible study, mm-hmm. I had to insa mm-hmm. because my mom would make me, you know, and right. had to use mm-hmm. Undemar. It gave me a chance to at least be Korean for those moments and right. be exposed to the different people there. So it was very pivotal for me. And, you know, it was overall very positive.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: But again, I didn't really have the you know, just the, the language or the, right. the understanding of how to interpret how people are treating me. Mm-hmm. But I don't remember anything, yeah. you know, traumatic or anything extreme, extremely negative. That mm-hmm. is.
2: So, Yeah, church is a funny thing because, especially when it comes to the Korean American community in particular, I think it's not just a, a place of religious worship. It's, for many people, it's an anchoring point of, culture and your your cultural society your ethnic group people come to church a lot of people come to church Korean church not just because like they want to be closer to God but because they just want to be closer to people like them right Mm -hmm. and so they are like little pockets of Korean culture that depending on who is at that church it can be very old school or it really modernized so I think a lot of people have very different interpretations Mm -hmm. of what church is like as a Korean especially in the U.S sometimes positive, sometimes negative. I've been to so many churches just because of how I've moved around so much in my life. So I've never experienced being part of a church where I felt like, oh, this is where it was always, oh, this is the church I go to, not this is my church, Mm -hmm. because I never had that time to really stabilize relationships. And we also were very up and down because we had my dad who preferred his style of churches, maybe a little bit more staid, maybe a little bit more calm, right, (laughs) kind of like that. And my mom, like really loud, charismatic, praying out loud with your friends really late into the night kind of churches. And we would go to those, sometimes we'd go sometimes with my dad. And it was just like ping-ponging kind of back and forth. As I got older and then I was attending Korean church in Korea, I felt very different there because don't have to get into Korean church culture necessarily but definitely myself I was like a fish out of water it's like I I don't know if you saw my article I wrote about I posted on LinkedIn I did
0: in in Korean church yeah
2: Mm -hmm. yeah Mm -hmm. I'm still writing more on that and thinking about it a lot but I definitely remember at that time I was like she's our our mixed Korean Mm -hmm. attendee and it just felt like that every time I went so after two years it was like I just can't have that spotlight Anymore. That was not church. It was just a place where people stared at you. <laughs> mm-hmm. So I think my experience with church is not straightforward. Yeah. That's probably sure the uh, abbreviated version. Yeah.
1: yeah, that makes sense. Mm-hmm. And if I can just briefly add, because yeah. you know, I, I spoke about my pretty much my adolescent time in church, mm-hmm. but after my nine year stint in the multicultural church. I ended up moving to New Jersey, pretty much in K-Town, Palisades Park area, tons of Koreans in Bergen County, New Jersey. So I, I actually, it's funny how this all ties together. I moved in with my childhood best friend where we reconnected and his father was actually our pastor of you know one of the Korean churches. And so we moved in. He was actually a youth pastor at the church that he is currently at. So I started to attend Korean church again. Mm-hmm. And so my experience in the Korean American church as an adult in a whole new setting where say half Koreans my age wasn't as common, mm-hmm. that was a different experience. Because again, it was it was always like whenever I introduced myself or like my friend would introduce me to the people there, the Korean Americans there, they wouldn't know unless I said or he said, that I was half Korean. And so, and whenever that would come up, oh yeah, my mom's Korean, it's always like, oh, that's so cool, wow, that's awesome, you know? And that's, it's it's very hard to explain. Professor, you might have the words to, to help me with whatever this concept is, but it's, it's it's very positive. They mean, you know, no harm by mm-hmm. it. And I wouldn't even say it's a microaggression, but, but it still makes me feel like, well, I'm just like you guys, you know, like, so I don't, I don't, I don't even want the extra fanfare. I don't want the extra recognition, or fact that, you know, I don't want to be called out for, you know, being half Korean and half something else. I just want to be like everyone else. Right? Right. So that is the experience that I've had in the five years prior to move to Korea in the Korean American church. So that was different from, you know, me growing up from, you know, age one to 18, Mm -hmm. in the Korean American church where I didn't really have the words or understanding or even the interest to, to understand culture, but as an adult, it was different. Mm. And so I started to really see and feel the differences of my experience.
2: Isn't that funny though? Because you're like, I just wanna be treated like everyone yeah. else. If I'm making that statement, you're already setting yourself aside. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. Like, don't look at this. It's the like, irony. what are you gonna yeah. do? You're looking so at it. <laughs> so it's such a catch 22, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. yeah.
0: And also, I know you didn't want to use the term microaggression, but in psychological sciences we talk about how sometimes compliments or good things that people try to say can actually land wrong, and therefore we can describe the impact as microaggression, right? That when people say, oh yeah, here's Becky, or here's Cedric, and it's a mixed race individual attending our community, let's recognize them they might be well intended, but it's really, and then another word that we use is exoticizing an experience in a way that ultimately can be dehumanizing, right? And so I don't know if that helps in putting language to it, Cedric, but that's sort of the world that I live in where we talk about microaggressions and their impact, even if it might be a positive intent, and then the dehumanization that can occur with repeated exposure to that kind of microaggression. Yeah. So I just wanted to validate your experience and say that it's not something that you're feeling alone. Right. That many people have talked about this. Yeah.
1: Right. Thank you. And if I can just, just add one more thing, just I guess, sort of as a disclaimer, I know that a lot of other mixed Koreans probably would not feel the same way. They probably like to hear that. They probably would embrace those sort of like, oh, you're different or like, you know, you're half Korean. Your mom's Korean. Well, cool. I think, you know, I guess it's important to say that my experience or perception right. doesn't reflect everyone's, of course, I just wanted to throw that out there. But for me, it just—it just, you know, I perceive it a certain way. And, you know, I can speak on that. But I know other people that enjoy those sorts of comments, mm-hmm. they, they wear it on their sleeve in a positive way. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's great.
0: Yeah. It also reminds me of how, for example, as a person of color in the US, I Expect that that identity as a Korean American be recognized by others that other people don't have a colorblind approach when looking at me Right, but at the same time treat me in the same way that they would treat any other person and so Sometimes that messaging can come across as contradictory and people might actually (laughs) criticize me for that But I I want both which is to be treated the same, but also to be Recognized for my unique identities, right? Right. Yeah. I know you were really gracious in sharing about your experiences in the church. I'm curious about further thoughts on how Christian communities can do better in supporting those who are of mixed-race background, who are who have this identity that I would say is a very precious identity that's God-given, and how can Christian communities... Foster an inclusive community for those individuals rather than maybe wounding them, whether intentionally or unintentionally. In the Christian churches that I've grown up in, colorblindness has been a major sort of a dominant theme where any kind of teaching around race and ethnicity and culture was about, well, God sees everyone the same and therefore we should just leave it at that, right? No more. And, and I know, Becky, you've talked a little bit about that. In my interview with you before and also when you visited my classes but can you speak a little bit to how christian communities can do better in this regard
2: well in terms of how the church can help with people i think you're right there is a kind of like almost a colorblind way of approaching in the u.s it's a little bit i don't know it's a little funny to me and i feel like that's why sometimes people feel like they have to overcompensate in um, the US, this this didn't happen in church, but sometimes I get this feeling is like in the US, if I meet someone else who's Asian, who's in the community with me, it's like they gravitate to me or say certain things that's like, oh yeah, we Asians gotta stick together or Asians we support. And Mm -hmm. it's so funny to me because, you know, growing up, I really wasn't around many mixed people, mixed Asians, and then moving to Korea, everyone's Asian so it's like when i came back to the u.s and people were very outspoken about yeah you just got to stick together i just felt so like ah i don't know you you know (laughs) because i was just looking at you as a person right but so like my eyes have changed a little bit since coming back just just the the discussion and the words that people now use i think it's kind of like that in church sometimes too i i guess my, my major issue, and again, I'm not sure if I am the best person to speak on this. This is just things that I've observed and then the discussions that I've had with the people who have had this as their firsthand experience. But it's just the issue of adoption is very closely tied to the Christian church in the U.S. And I think it often is the church that is the first and loudest proponent for adoption right. in America. And I, I think that a lot of the rhetoric surrounding adoption, maybe historically, maybe still today, has left a more negative impact than a positive one. And we know that the concept of adoption, being a daughter or son of Christ, your father who has adopted you, they get such strong, powerful imagery. And I feel really sad when I think about that getting twisted just because of the lived experiences of many adoptees. And I do think that that honestly can be a really big reason why some people just I don't want to be part of anything that promotes that because my experience, my lived experience was so negative. So that is something I think about a lot. I don't know how I can be the one really to say you know, about that. It's just this is the things that I've observed and heard a lot about. Yeah, and the church is supposed to be ultimately a place of community and acceptance. But by nature, whenever there are groups of people together, certain social rules form and sometimes you fit in them. Sometimes you don't. Mm -hmm. So how can that be fixed? I don't know. (laughs) What's the the (laughs) ideal church, right? But these are definitely things that I have felt myself having gone to so many churches all around the United States. As much as people preach love and acceptance, it's very easy to feel strongly like the outsider. And this goes for both just American churches where there's many white folks and Korean churches where it's all Koreans.
1: And I don't I don't know if I can add any more value to that question because it is difficult. I guess in the context of say Korean churches, maybe I can speak on that a little bit. I don't know. I mean you, you, you sort of mentioned maybe the, the catch 22 situation of you, you you want to be treated and recognized as everyone else, but at the same time, like you want to you want to be you want to appreciate your what makes you special in you. So in the context of church, I don't. I I think what might help would be, you know, everyone should be treated equally or fairly in a sense of
2: of all places. It should be church. Of course, right?
1: yeah. Like just as a person, as someone who has just human value, or you're made in the image of God. Like just that should be maybe the first mm-hmm. layer. Not so much your how you look or your cultural, ethnic, or even national makeup. Mm-hmm. And I think maybe from that baseline, you know, for say like kids growing up, mixed kids growing up in, in churches, necessarily calling out their differences, but just, you know, making everyone feel like they're equally part of the group. But then comes the question of how do you appreciate, say like your cultural aspects. And so so that that is, again, I don't have a, a clear answer this is something that I, I frankly wrestle with in my mind, these sorts of questions, but I think making people, just like making people feel like they're part of the group and not outed or outside maybe is a good place to start. And then from there, having moments of just organically celebrating what makes everyone unique, not just you, and not just because of your background, your ethnic background, but... Just you as a person that can include, you know, hey, I have, you know, a a Dominican side of me that is pretty cool. We have great music and food, you know, or, you know, anything like with anyone else. So maybe having a balance of baseline, everyone is the same in terms of equity. But
2: Well, well, I mean, I think it all comes down to what is your identity as a Christian? What does that mean? Because I think if we understand that first and foremost, The rest of it all just kind of falls into place naturally. You don't have to think about where it belongs. If your baseline is already like, oh, I am a daughter of Christ. You are a son of Christ. Oh, we're all church. We're part of the family. We're part of the body of Christ. Mm -hmm. And then outside of that, once you, because that's such a strong mutual understanding of love and acceptance, just by nature as it is, because that's what it's supposed to be. Then on top of that, you know, your race or your ethnicity or your culture, those kind of things just, then they're just there, and you can acknowledge it without dancing around and trying to figure out hey, where does this fit here, where does that fit here. Mm-hmm. I think part of it does have to come down to maybe a lack of biblical understanding in the American church, and I also do think there's a certain church culture that exists in the United States, and which is why when you hear the term Christian in America, you associate it immediately with certain, you know, maybe political leanings or certain ideals or values, which personally, I don't think are reflected in actually the work of God. So those probably things need to be corrected as well, maybe on a greater whole, which can be be difficult, especially when you're the one feeling the impact a lot of the time.
0: Yeah, no, these are really important suggestions and insights that you're reflecting on. And I'm struck by Cedric, what you shared regarding that idea of creating a belonging environment for folks, for young children, including, well, everyone, but including multiracial children and how reflecting on the Korean church and how homogeneous it tends to be, right? And right. again context is important of course, right? So as you mentioned, like in a like a military base, maybe there might have been more diversity because of mixed marriages, right? But in the Korean churches that I've been, things have been pretty homogeneous. And to be able to then create an environment where it's inclusive of those who are in the statistical minority right but still part of the family of god i think is so critical and sometimes really difficult to do and i think like both of you have been saying i'm still trying to think about what's the best way to do that and one one starting point might be like a representation and thinking about like who do we have in leadership who do we have as Sunday school teachers, who, we, who do we have as pastors, elders, and thinking about maybe diversifying that group in a way that is not the entirety of the solution, but maybe a good starting point, right? Yeah,
1: yeah that, that's a good point. Yeah. And that obviously goes even beyond the bounds of the church. I mean, I think representation in yeah. many or if not all aspects, I think would only benefit society. And sub-societies and cultures. Yeah, I, sure. I
2: do. I think if I could put a counterpoint to that is because this is something we see, for example, in the entertainment industry a lot, is a false importance mm. in diversity. It's not really... It's diversity for diversity's sake. Right. As opposed to a person who just happens to be diverse from what you usually see, and they're fit for it. I think it can be the same thing in leadership, in politics, in schools. It is ideal to have people who are diverse, who look, who can represent, Whole different swaths of the population in positions of leadership that is really important but i don't think just for the sake of being there then mm-hmm. you're simply just an image yeah like you do not actually carry any value learning because you understand the people but that that does come down to a deeper rooted issue from the start are you getting educated do you have the access to those kind of things right you know.
0: yeah yeah no good point yeah so again representation is not the end, right? But it's something that can be a starting point. But like Becky mentioned, the training that and, and, and the hard work of growing in your understanding when it comes to diversity, that's what's really important, right? So as I shared with you before, many who listen to this podcast are educators. We're always looking to add to our bag of tricks, if you will, when it comes to teaching about faith, teaching about diversity and belonging and the reason that i really admire your work is because you are doing educating in a very non-traditional way right and i guess one big way that you're educating folks is through storytelling and you do it so well and i i want to learn from you and i think my listeners would benefit from you if you could share a bit about you know what that approach is like like how do you understand storytelling and how does the Happy Project tell the story of mixed-race individuals?
2: In terms of storytelling, so I guess the way that we approach the Happy Project, and we're really cautious about this all the time, is recognizing the value in each story and giving each story the gravity it deserves. Whether it's very sad, whether it's really funny, as long as the story is honest, we are happy to share it. Um, I know we get a lot of people who are like, your stuff is too sad. You should stop saying all this stuff. It's like, oh, we can't help it. This is, these are just how the stories are. And I'm a really firm believer that storytelling is, is probably the most powerful tool we have no matter what medium you use, but to really convey something, a reality to somebody else, you can't really change a person's mind by telling them to change their mind. You can only. They can only change their own mind. All you can do is present the facts and information in a way that makes them understand. And I just think stories are the most powerful way to do that. We've been very fortunate to have such an arsenal of stories, right, and people are so willing to share them with us. And that's something we're really grateful for. And there's nothing special, I think, that we do. I really do think that we're just, we just listen first. That has probably been our biggest biggest strength in this. And the fact that we are both mixed, I think it makes people feel safer to tell us these things, as opposed to any other random individual. So yeah, we're very we're very grateful for that. Yeah, storytelling is, is so powerful, and it's not just with culture; it's with literally everything. I mean, this is why we teach literature, right? And world history—it's all all it is is stories. So that's one thing. In terms of what didn't work, I don't know if it's ever been in our case, but things that we've really absorbed. We did have one person who came on who just lied the whole time. Oh, no. And the reason we found out was because his wife told me, like, well, that's not true. That never happened. I don't know who he's talking about. <laughs> it's just like people want to take advantage of this platform. So we are also very careful right. about that. We don't just indiscriminately believe everything, though we want to. Right, right. right. But we to trust we taking right. advantage. It, the thing is with cultural things like this, and we are very careful when we see other platforms or YouTube channels that maybe are in a similar space we're very cautious to never push our opinion we're very cautious to be like this is what it means to be we just let the stories be. We're trying to shape it to fit our agenda right we just them be sometimes they're well received sometimes they're not but each story has its power and people right. can take it as they do yeah
1: yeah And just to add to that, I mean, again, it's in the same vein of stories, but we try to tell our stories, obviously, in a creative way through the mediums of video, through just conversations like podcasts or Mm -hmm. conversations like this one, or through writing, you know, more so with with Becky, because she's phenomenal at writing. But one of the things that we always, always try to do, whether it's on top of mind, or it's just within us is always having a sense of empathy with every story that we tell or every case that we present i mean we've we've dealt with some difficult and touchy topics on the channel and i mean you could just tell in the comments you know that it's it's really touchy but we always try to come from a place of presenting facts we try our best to to always make sure we're well researched and to the best of our ability and try to present it in an empathetic way if we're talking about a hard topic where maybe we're talking about something that, for example, Korea may be at fault for in a certain situation. We always try to say, well, why did they make that decision as a nation? Or why do why does the older generation treat, you know, the mixed Koreans this way? Like, because we we try to look at the context and we we try to have empathy, but still present the facts. Right. And you know, we're not making excuses, but we're saying, look it is what it is. And we just try to let the story speak for itself. And,
2: you know, ultimately, it's
1: it's for the viewer and the listeners to to make their own decisions and judgments,
2: mm-hmm. right? Yeah, The skill of storytelling because I, I, I don't think it is totally honest to say like, Oh, anybody could just do it. Mm-hmm. You can, of course, you can tell a story. But I do think there's a certain skill to how you speak, how you present and how you craft. And that's something we've learned over time, okay, we have this story. What's the best way to present it right. so that the person who's viewing or hearing can understand what your point is? It's not just right. anything.
1: Right. right. It's it's knowing your audience. Yeah. You know. It's if I can. I didn't expect to do this, but if I can just draw from the the scripture a bit. I mean, it's kind of like the Apostle Paul becoming, you know, whatever he needed to become to whoever he was addressing. Mm so in a non-biblical or non-spiritual sense we try to do that and we try to read the room we try to know who we're speaking to who this is for and then address it accordingly mm-hmm. and so i think overall it has worked pretty well for us but yeah ultimately i think it is the stories that and they i think that is probably one of the most powerful tools if yeah. not the most powerful tool and letting the authentic stories of people speak for itself because if it's authentic and real the person who is listening to the story or watching the story has a decision to make to whether to receive that as okay this is this person's actual experience or just sort of gaslight or just deny and say you know what I'm going to be thinking the way that I think and so it's not on us to push what we feel like is is probably true or real it's it's for us to just present that honest authentic story in, in, in the best way that we can right. just hopefully some positive changes will come from that
0: Yeah, I love that I'm, I'm taking mental notes but if I can mm-hmm. go back to thinking about how in the Bible like when Jesus talked to people he would draw he would use stories right in a way that was super meaningful for folks and changing lives in a way that yeah again illustrates the importance of stories for impacting lives and I know that you are modest in saying, "Oh, we let the stories speak for themselves." But also, you have the skill set, the tools, the creativity to be able to present the stories well. And I think that's the part that I think my listeners, myself, were all trying to grow in. Related to that question, again, many of my listeners are academics, and we are sometimes scared to reach beyond beyond the walls of academia. <laughs> like we're very comfortable in academia and. It feels like a safe space to be in our ivory towers and i'm curious like if you had any words of encouragement or maybe even like what would be the word like a challenge right to academics who are wanting to take that step but haven't yet done so like what are some from your perspective and from your experiences ways to start small but still take that step of maybe doing more public facing work and and, Growing that audience, that Cedric that you were talking about.
2: Mm. Well, with anything public facing, yeah. you have to realize you face the public. <laughs> <laughs> they're, they're a many headed monster. Yeah. Right? <laughs> Sometimes they say the most nasty, horrible things to you, even if you know your information is true. And and um,
0: can I can I ask a question, which is do you read comments that are posted on your podcast and on your videos and other things online? Because I really have difficulty reading comments, especially nasty comments. But do you read them yeah. and do you respond to them?
2: Yes, I do. Mm. Um, they're like slings and arrows to my heart. Uh. But he's very good at, you know, talking me down about it. Okay. So like, Look, this is, well, sometimes they're personal attacks, but mm. you know, <laughs> yeah.
1: just like, they don't know you. They don't know you. you yeah, know, there's a there's a great advice that I heard from a prominent voice in modern day culture. I'll leave his name out of the conversation but he said something to the effect of, you know, whenever you get a negative comment or tons of negative comments, as long as you're, you know, presenting good work or your your message is authentic and and what have you? As long you like just think think about it from this perspective, how miserable that person's life has to be for them to take time out of their day to Watch your content or read your content or even not just read the headline, make a nasty comment to try to hurt you or to try to be negative, you know, you know, I know he's exaggerating with this point, but it makes sense. It's like, well, it's at the end of the day, it's, it's, it's nothing personal. If anything, it's more so maybe an issue with them or maybe some trauma that they've felt and they're just lashing out because it's easy to do so. And there's the, you know, the anonymity factor with that. But yeah, yeah. I, do that
2: I do think that's something that everyone has to suffer through <laughs> when it comes through the comments. <laughs> so myself, I don't know if it's a benefit to read them. I, I only do it out of obligation to the people I'm trying to build community with. Right. But yeah, it's definitely difficult. So yeah, I guess that's my first thing I would say, and I'm working on that too, is build a thick skin. Like, you should be proud of your work and just consider this is a platform, and which means people from all walks of life and understandings can look at this. And so not Mm -hmm. everything they respond is of value to your work because it might not be related whatsoever. I guess, I don't know, like, because the thing is to academics, I don't think that there is one type of academic person, for sure. There are definitely those who are very charismatic and outgoing, and then you have those who are more introspective. And it is true public speaking or presenting in a creative and exciting way that can draw a more general audience, that is also a skill to be learned, with, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I don't know if even just doing it entirely by yourself is always helpful. Even myself, once I teamed with him, things totally changed and it really helped to have somebody to bounce mm-hmm. off of. So it can be very daunting right. when you're first to put your tone. Yeah. Yeah.
1: If I can offer my perspective, maybe to any educator or someone who wants to maybe get their message out there, get their face out there a little bit, we live in the social media era. For me, it's it's free attention that you can get for whatever message that you're trying to convey, big or small. And so I'm in the camp of you know no matter what space you're in, whether you're in education, entertainment, or anything, I feel like for nine times out of ten, there's something that you can do on these social media platforms to to further either your brand or your message. And so my advice is to just start. Mm. That is literally what I did off the advice of the same gentleman I actually mentioned before. In 2017, his advice was document, don't create. Mm. And this is right when I decided to move to South Korea. I was not a filmmaker nor photographer, had none of these skills. And I said, you know what? I want to document my experience Mm -hmm. of going to Korea, which opened up the whole door of me getting on social media, growing an audience and a following, getting my message out there. And ultimately that led us to meeting Mm -hmm. and me being part of the Happy Project. And so I could have never guessed that these doors would have opened for me had I not just made that one decision based off of, you know, his advice to just basically just start. Just Mm -hmm. press record. It's you know, your worst video in my case is gonna be the first video. It'll only get better better from there so so my advice is you know if you have a message and you feel like you want to share it with more people i think social media through whatever platform you can get on to be honest and whatever you can handle whatever's in your bandwidth i'd say just start start, start posting start you know getting your message out there if you don't want to show your face there's other ways to do it podcasting is you know still a very relevant means to do that right so that would be my advice. You know the technical, you know, sides of maybe growing an audience. There's resources out there for that, but my thing is to to just start start with what you have in your audience now.
2: Yeah, that let's is, be honest, mm-hmm. Professor Kim. He wasn't that great when he first started either. But <laughs> no, he's, I wasn't. He's improved over time. It's, it's, yeah, the
0: receipts are still there. So <laughs> it's hard. It's all. hard to believe though that, that looking at your work now. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Please <laughs> go back and, and look. <laughs> this is really good advice. I think that initial step, regardless of what the product is, is so important, right? That that first foot into, or first step toward that. I've, it's not a question that I wrote down, but as you're talking about social media, I wanted to ask you, as sometimes as a Christian, I have this internal conflict about using social media to promote my work, because one way to think about social media is a promotion of the self, right? And that's so counter to some of the cultural values that I've internalized within the church and also in the Korean setting as well. As you know, a big cultural value in Korea is sort of the erasing of the self or at least lowering of the self. But social media says you really got to put yourself out there. And so how do you reconcile that dissonance, especially from a Christian perspective, but also from a cultural perspective?
2: I think you will be able to speak better than me on this because I've also... Mm-hmm. Very Until very recently, mm-hmm. I've always been like, especially with the Happy Project, I was just like, I don't want to show myself. Mm-hmm. I think this is not about me. I don't want to draw attention to myself. So I'm just going to be behind the scenes mm-hmm. and everything. And he was I the said, one. No, who you got to show your face. changed mm-hmm. it in my mind. Mm-hmm. It yeah. Still, like, struggle with it for sure. But you know, maybe you have better.
1: Yeah, I guess in the context of, I guess, coming from a, a Christian worldview and faith. For me, I think one way to maybe reconcile that feeling, because I understand, you know, especially in my younger years, I was very, I was a super, I was almost borderline zealot mm. <laughs> for my kids. i toned back a lot. <laughs> but so I understand the feeling of wanting to always be humble mm. and, you know, not put yourself out there putting others first. But then, you know, the way I think of it now is through social media, for me, it's it's not ultimately about me. I mean, let's be real. Part of it is, you know, I do want to like. There's some things that I want to get. You I want to get value. recognized, right right, right? right. I want to get some validation yeah. too. But ultimately, I am with everything I do. I try to add value to people. And then, whenever I started to, especially in the beginning, started to get the the feedback, really through the comment section, and then people starting to follow me on socials and sending me messages, I started to realize, wow, this. What I started is, is bigger than what I had originally intended because it's reaching people. I'm getting messages of people saying how my content or my story has changed their lives. Mm-hmm. And then I started to realize, you know what? I, I want to use these tools and resources to be able to just continue the work. You know, I had no grand ambition of, you know, I want to hit a million subscribers or anything like that. To me, that's very arbitrary. But I have just wanted to grow as, as big of an audience as 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 I can, right. just with what I do authentically, organically, I let the cards fall where they may. And through that process, just add value to people, give them something that they can take. And I, I think with the Happy Project, that is also the same thing with what we want to do. It's not something that, I mean, we don't, you know, we've, we've invested time, we've invested a lot of money mm-hmm. into it and not for any sort of gain back, you know? And I think that is sort of the heart check for us is like, you know, what are we doing this for? So I think maybe that can sort of help reconcile those feelings. At least it it did for me for sure. And it continues to do so.
2: Yeah. There's something it's, it's almost like, it's almost like sometimes we associate being in front of people and showing your abilities as pride. And I think there can be a negative pride for sure. Mm -hmm. Right. Where it's coming from, look at me. And then there's like just proud of my abilities this is what i've worked hard on this is what i've researched this is what i've produced look isn't it great and there's i think there's a separation of that just like humility i don't believe humility is just oh i'm terrible i'm a worm like humility is something else far more genuine than that so there can be a kind of a, a misconception i think about putting your work out and yeah. your face out <laughs> to you know a wider audience as pride
1: yeah right because if you don't put it out, someone else will. And maybe that voice won't be as, you know, as positive as say yours, exactly. Yeah. So, but to each his own at the end of the day. Mm -hmm. Yeah.
0: Yeah, I've been thinking about how being on social media can be an act of service to other people. Both of you have mentioned this where you're not telling just Or I'm not telling just my story, but I'm telling the stories of others like yours, for example, in a way that then can serve those who are looking to learn and looking to relate to these experiences. So that's how how I've been trying to reconcile sort of my dissonance. So this conversation with you is also very helpful in that regard. Gosh, I could listen to you talk for a long time, but we've come to our last question, which is. A question that I ask all guests. And so it can be a silly one or it can be a really meaningful or very difficult one because you don't have to answer it, right? Which is, if you could ask my next guest any question, what would it be? And I don't know who my next guest is off the top of my head. So (laughs) you have to just think about like a typical person who might be interested in this topic, maybe from a Christian worldview, right? But what's a question you might throw at them, right? As something for them to consider,
2: I guess it would be like if you if you had the opportunity to completely change your career
3: mm.
2: and work trajectory, wow. what would that be? Like if you know, the door just opened to you suddenly and was like, Hey, I would love you to do this. I know it's the first time. There you go. And then it would totally change the path of your career in life, what would that be?
1: It's mm. very good. And as you were asking that question, I was hoping something would pop in my head during that time. <laughs> But no, I'm, I'm thinking something along the lines of, and I guess I'll go a little deeper, okay. a little more serious, uh, something along the lines of fulfillment. but uh, And I guess it's tied to your question a little bit, but taking out all the external factors that we have to deal with in modern day society of having to pay our bills or you know, earn money, if you could strip all of that away and focus on we'll say one thing that really fulfills you in terms of doing something or offering something to the world and money is not an issue, time, location, or any of that is an issue. What would that one thing be? Good question. That is something that I, in some ways, ask myself. So I think that would be a good, fun yeah. question <laughs>
2: no. to ask the next guest.
0: Excellent, both of you. And also related questions you're posing there. So thank you for doing that.
2: Did your previous guest have a question?
0: Yes. and. I'm embarrassed because I don't, I can't think of what that question was, right? But
1: <laughs>
0: I might, yeah. <laughs> I might come back to you later on if I can remember. How can my listeners find you online? How can they look up your work, follow you? Could you share a bit about that?
2: Yeah, I mean, just the Happy Project. I think really, if you look up the Happy Project or Happy in Korea, th- we are always the things that pop up. Probably the happy project is just the best thing we have the website happyproject.com we have the instagram at the happy project i even have a tick tock going mm-hmm. <laughs> it's awesome. not you know super popular yet but the happy project but also youtube the happy project it's it's all there and it does link to our personal stuff if people are interested in us more personally but great. just looking up the happy project everything should show up great
0: thank you yeah, yeah. Anything else that you'd like to share?
2: I think this podcast is so great. I love that you're doing this and I also think you're a very great moderator. So two thumbs up.
1: Yeah, it's a fun conversation. I'm sure we could (laughs) have went hours. This was
2: so great.
0: Thank you. And I, again, admire both of you and the work that you're doing. And I know that Becky, I've requested multiple times and and you've been so gracious and interviewing and also guest speaking in my classes. So thank you so much for that and Cedric, Thank you for being here with Becky today and, and both of you for sharing. Thank you for listening to the Cross-Cultural Psych Podcast with Dr. Paul young Binkin. We hope this content was meaningful. If you enjoyed the podcast, we invite you to write a review on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Also, let us know what you'd like to see covered in future episodes. We hope you'll join us next time.